Today on His People, Joe Webb, on his concerns about divorce among Christians and what the Bible says about it. Today, the divorce rate amongst evangelical Christians is 7% higher than in the world. The divorce rate among pastors is equal to the world today, and even at charismatic and Pentecostal circles now, the divorce rate's even higher than 7% above the world. The subject of divorce and remarriage is very thorny, to say the least, in the Christian community. Understandings of Scripture vary on when divorce and remarriage are permissible, as do the implications of these actions. Joseph Webb, a retired Baptist pastor, takes an uncommon but passionate view of this red-hot issue. His book is titled, Till Death Do Us Part, with a question mark, what the Bible really says about marriage and divorce. Joe, how is your book contributing to all the knowledge which is already out there on this subject? Well, actually, Brother Bill, I, I hate to say this, but my book is the end result of studying for eight years what other, other writers have written, and then searching the Word of God and finding that what they're teaching is not what the early church taught at all. And I, I of course, there are many pastors that would... Uh, really appreciate it if I had not written my book and uh, don't like it when my book is uh, promoted and and, uh, spoken of because they have accepted the the lie that was put into the church back in the 1500s and caused it to become traditional, the traditional Protestant view today, which is not what the Scripture says. And I don't enjoy coming along after the fact and telling people, you have been deceived in this situation, but as we study it, and by the way, whatever we say about the book today, it's just going to be skimming the surface because it's about 274 pages in detail, progressively showing where we've come from and where we are today concerning marriage and divorce. Okay, you mentioned, uh, Joe, the lie in the 1500s put in the church, which yes. is now the traditional Protestant view, and I realize this is going to make up the whole conversation, but what is that lie as you see it? Well, for the first 1500 years of the early church, Bill, there were no positions like the teaching that's in our church today. There were four early positions, and all of them said that marriage constitutes a sacrament, it's for life, and only death can separate it. If you do get a divorce, you cannot remarry. If you remarry, that constitutes adultery, period. They had little idiosyncrasies, little differences, but basically that was the only teaching in the early church. But in the 1500s, during the time of King Henry VIII and during the time of Martin Luther and John Calvin, there was a defrocked Roman Catholic priest who had been thrown out of the priesthood, his works had been burned, who tried to befriend uh, John Calvin and uh, and Martin Luther, and uh, they, they disfellowshipped him. They didn't want to have anything to do with him, but he was a friend of King Henry VIII, and King Henry VIII wanted to divorce his wife of 28 years, by whom he had had a daughter, who was later uh, Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, they called her, and uh, the, the Roman Church would not annul the marriage, so he pulled the church out and started the Church of England for that very reason, and then got rid of his wife. This priest at that time wrote what was called the Erasmian View. Now, Martin Luther said that this man was, first of all, a child molester and a sodomite. I didn't say it. Martin Luther himself said that he stirred up the passions of little boys. But this this writer today in our university libraries is called the Prince of Humanists. This is Erasmus. Erasmus. He was a very brilliant man, but he was a philosopher. His lifestyle was corrupt. His family was very, very uh, dysfunctional, but uh, from his parents, I mean. 
and uh, he wrote what was called the traditional Protestant, that is today called the traditional Protestant view, or the Matthew Pauline exception theory, that for in the case of adultery or abandonment, it is grounds for divorce and remarriage. And this was uh, in response to King Henry VIII wanting a divorce. Well, this happened at the same time. Uh, whether he was trying to befriend King Henry VIII, I, that we don't know. But it was written right during the time when King Henry VIII pulled the church out of Rome and started the Church of England because he wanted to get a, have an excuse, I mean, wanted to be able to have the right to divorce his wife of 28 years. Hmm. Now, later on, this, uh, this position that he took, Desiderius uh, Erasmus said that any two people that don't love each other anymore uh, certainly shouldn't have to stay together. But that isn't what the Bible says. Hmm. Well, that isn't what the early church said. Hmm. And so th- what has happened, the, the, the present-day church has thoroughly thrown out the other four positions that took place that were in, in existence from the first 1,500 years of our church and have totally gone over to the Erasmian view, with the end result being that today the divorce rate amongst evangelical Christians is 7% higher than in the world. The divorce rate among pastors is equal to the world today, and even at charismatic and Pentecostal circles now, the divorce rate's even higher than 7% above the world. And, and where do you get those statistics? That came from the Baltimore Globe's uh, recent uh, survey they took. That was the, one of the uh, results of their survey they took. They, they uh, did a, a polling and found out that the new level of divorce amongst evangelical Christians, not, not the liberal church, the evangelical Christians, is now 7% higher than those that are unchurched. And do you know what those percentages are, uh, Joe? Well, the present uh, divorce rate in the United States, generally speaking, is it was 50%. Now it's down to about 48%. Uh, that's on the first marriage. Okay, and the evangelical... The marriage is 75%, and the third marriage is 85%. And the evangelical Christians then are about 55% then? You say about 7% right, higher? about 55% of them. Okay. That's, now, if you get into the charismatic and Pentecostal movement, of course, where they're actually promoting um, the uh, remarriage, it goes even higher than that. Hmm. Well, my guest is uh, Pastor Joe Webb, and his book is Till Death Do Us Part, what the Bible really says about uh, marriage and uh, divorce. And obviously, Joe, at this point, I can hear some people saying, well, it's great to make reference to church history, but we can only establish so much by that. It's the Scripture, ultimately, uh, that matters. But uh, one one other question that you raised there, you said that Erasmus, uh, and in, in, fact, uh, in effect, the Protestant Church in general then, jettisoned or threw out the other four positions which were accepted throughout church history in terms of marriage and divorce. Can you briefly uh, touch on what those four were that you believe were pushed aside? To get into it, Bill, in detail would be very, very lengthy, but the positions that they took, like I said, was strictly that marriage was for life. And, of course, they took that from the Scriptures themselves. In the book of Genesis, when God was, uh, was dealing with Adam and Eve, he brought Eve to Adam, and Adam said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Woman has come from a man, and therefore she came from man. And he says that when Adam said that, God immediately spoke up and said, For this cause, what, what cause? Adam just said something. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall be, not become, but shall be, be, that's permanent, be one flesh. And when you get over into the book of Mark, that's referred to again when the Pharisees came to Jesus and asked him about it, and because uh, they were trying to tempt him and get him uh, in trouble with one or one of the other of uh, one of the two Jewish rabbinical schools, uh, they asked him about divorcing, and uh, he said uh, he said that, uh, what 
did Moses command you? And they said that he suffered us to uh, write a bill of divorcement and put her away. And Jesus answered and said to them, For the hardness of your heart, he wrote that precept. But from the beginning, God made them male and female. Talking about Adam and Eve now. Okay. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. That word cleave literally means be glued to or cemented to his wife. And they twain shall be one flesh, so then they are no more twain but one flesh. In other words, they were two, now they're one, and they'll never again be two but one flesh. Okay. And and uh, Jesus went right on and said, What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And the Greek is even stronger than that. No man may separate what God has joined together is what it says. And uh, so he, he says in verse 11 of chapter 10 of Mark, And he saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she commits adultery. So uh, it's very, very, I mean, there, that doesn't even need interpretation. And this is the procedure that I've used in this book, Brother Bill. Uh, I, I start with all the clear portions of Scripture. Most of the books in our bookstores today, they will go to the unclear portions of Scripture, like Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 and Deuteronomy 24, and build a doctrine on those verses. And then when they come over to Romans and Mark and uh, Luke and uh, Hebrews and 1 Corinthians, they say, well, I don't know exactly why he said it just like that, but we already have Matthew over here, and so we can go in there. But one of the first things you learn in hermeneutics, you never build a doctrine on the unclear verses. You build your doctrine on clear verses and go from the clear verses to the unclear verses. And you interpret all unclear verses by the clear verses. Could there be an attitude, Joe, here, though, of, of subjectivity? Might you say the ones you're saying are unclear? Someone might say, well, those aren't unclear at all. Well, let me give you an example. Okay. In, in Luke here, I mean, Mark, where we just read it, there's no interpretation needed. He said, whosoever shall put away his wife or divorce his wife and marry another commits adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she commits adultery. Now, we don't even need to explain what that says. It's just as plain as the nose on your face. Now, when you get over to Matthew, in Matthew 5 and 19, which are the, is, is part of that uh, present-day uh, Erasmian view, Matthew 5 and 19 says, um, let me find it here, Matthew 19, He's got a little phrase in there that isn't found in Mark and Luke. And some people say, well, that's all that's needed because it's in Matthew twice. But they don't realize Mark and Luke were written before Matthew. So if that's the verse we're going to use to go by, the first Christians didn't have the chance to have that excuse because Mark and Luke were written first, even though Matthew was put in the Bible first. It says um, in Matthew 19, I'll start with verse 8. Okay. He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her that is put away, doth commit adultery. Now, they say that means adultery. Jesus did not have a lack of, of uh, vocabulary. Why would he use adultery and fornication in the same verse if he meant adultery? There, In my book, and I go in great detail in this, the difference between the use of uh, different ways in which pornea is used against moikia. Pornea, in the Greek, means fornication. Now, there are broad uses of the word, and I give the example, if I were to say to you, here's a basket of fruit on the table, 
I can look in that basket, and there's apples, oranges, bananas, grapes, and so forth. That is a general term, and it's used in the New Testament, uh, and there's no question about it. It says, flee fornication. In that use, it is a broad sense of meaning, flee from all types of moral, sexual immorality. But then there are specific uses where I say there is a basket with apples, oranges, bananas, and grapes. Now I'm being very specific. Paul the Apostle said that, Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, now he's using them separately, nor uh, adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves, nor thieves, nor covetous. That's in this very specific sense he's using it. When the Pharisees said to Jesus, We be not born of fornication, they were using that in a very specific form. They were saying, We're not like you, where you were born out of wedlock. Okay. Now, that's a specific use. And Jesus was using a very specific use here in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 when he used this phrase. Over in Matthew 1, it talks about Mary, the wife of Joseph, being betrothed to him. They weren't married yet. They are betrothed, but called, him his, called her his wife. And Joseph, the husband of Mary, being betrothed to him, he thought Mary had committed what? Uh, fornication. Couldn't be adultery, could it? She wasn't married. They weren't married. He thought she'd committed fornication, and this practice well, goes all the way back to Sodom and Gomorrah, where it said that Lot had two, uh, had two sons-in-laws. But later on, when the, when the Sodomites came to his house to try to take the angels out of the house, he said, here, take my two virgin daughters. Now, wait a minute, if he has sons-in-laws, how could they be virgin daughters? Lot only had two daughters. They were betrothed. They were only betrothed to him at that time to them at that time. And they considered them sons-in-law even though they weren't married yet. That's right. They, they treated them as though they were married, called them husband and wife, sons-in-laws, and so forth, uh, but even before the marriage was finalized because they had already agreed, the fathers had agreed and, and, and smacked hands together and, and everything was taken care of as all the, 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 all the decisions were already made except for the final time when they came and committed themselves to each other. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, when Joseph was going to get rid of Mary, it said he was going to divorce her quietly. And then the angel of the Lord came and said, No, that which is in her is of the Holy Spirit. So in order to to break up a, a, a betrothal, which was even stronger than what we call an engagement today, to break that up, you had to go before the Sanhedrin and get a legal divorce. Matthew is written to the Jews. Mark and Luke are written to the Romans and the Greeks. There's no reason for for the writers of Mark and Luke to insert that phrase because it was not written to the Jews. Matthew was written to the Jews. That's why they have the genealogy of Joseph and Mary to show that Christ was the Messiah. That's why in Matthew, when Jesus was talking about the kingdom of heaven, in Mark and Luke, he talked about the kingdom of God because the the Jews wanted an earthly kingdom. But every time that phrase is used in Matthew because it was written to the Jews, he talked about the kingdom of heaven. Let them know it's not an earthly kingdom. It's not an earthly kingdom. Okay, now, Matthew put that in there, except it be for fornication, because the, he was saying to the Jews, the only time you can get a divorce from now on is during the time if one or the other has committed fornication. But if at any other time, what did he go on there to say in that, uh, in verses 10, or verse 9, uh, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. In other words, if you do it any other time, and whosoever marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. Well, let me try to clarify here a little bit, Joe. Uh, you know, it may be a semantic difference. Uh, I have whoever uh, divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. Oh, don't, th- now you know what you're using? You're using one of the new translations that have totally perverted that 
Greek word. Oh. In the Old Testament bill, when was adultery ever grounds for divorce? I can't answer that, but I'm just trying to clarify this particular passage, Matthew 19:9. Yes. Uh, you, you're saying you, you were, as I understand you, you were differentiating between the general and the specific adultery, fornication, and so on, being specific sexual sins, but the sexual immorality being the general uh, sort of umbrella for sexual sin. Yes, and, and actually, it it is not saying sexual just sexual sexual immorality, a specific type of sexual immorality. Is fornication? He's saying fornication, which is between singles. Adultery is between a, a married people. Okay, well, th the question would be then, if the, if the word is fornication, but we're talking about the context of divorce, you're talking about married people, aren't you? So fornication oh. would not apply to them, would it? Joseph, Joseph was going to divorce Mary. They weren't married. In the Jewish society, he was not married. He was only betrothed to her. And being betrothed, he had to get a legal divorce from a betrothal, not from a marriage. And Jesus was simply saying to them, the only time you can get a divorce from now on is during that time of engagement, you Jewish people, but not after you're married. But do you see how it could be confusing? I mean, to some it might sound like you have to be a, uh, a historical scholar to be able to understand what seems to be a pretty clear meaning in this passage. Well, any time you use the new translations that have called it sexual immorality or marital unfaithfulness, those are total distortions of the word. By the way, in order for those, those translations to even be on the market today, they had to make at least a thousand major changes from the King James Version, and it's done damage to the Word of God. Why is your view such a minority? Could it be because uh, you reject uh, other translations of the Bible? Well, I'm not rejecting them. I'm simply telling you you have to be very careful, and where they're not staying consistent with the Greek, we cannot follow after them. And in this case, they're not staying consistent with the Greek text. The Greek text is pornea, and pornea means sex between singles. Hmm. Well, yeah, I can see where we, it'll be difficult to, to further analyze this passage because it's clearly talking about married people and divorce. And so some are going to say, well, in this context, it seems very clear he's talking about the married individual, sexual immorality occurring within between the, one of the marriage uh, partners and then the issue of marrying yet another and then adultery coming out of that singleness doesn't seem to be anywhere in that passage as you read it plainly. Well, look again in Matthew, the first chapter, Bill. Now the birth of, of verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together was found with the child of the Holy Ghost. When then Joseph, her husband, it didn't say her fiancé, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. And then later on it says, Joseph, thou son of David, verse 20, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Now, he was not married to her yet, but he called her the Holy Ghost. The, the, I mean, the angel called, it, called her his wife. Yeah. And when you get down to verse 24... And Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and call, he called his name Jesus. Now, here he was calling her the wife, and him the husband. Now, that's married terms. Yes, it is. And Joseph was going to get a divorce. He right. had to divorce his wife, Mary. That's what he said, thy wife. They termed, used that term. And that's why I said, if you don't understand what Matthew is, is about that is written to the Jews and is very clearly written to the Jews, 
then you can distort that to say it means sexual impurity. Now, if it means sexual impurity, then Jesus was wrong in the book of Luke. Because over in Luke, in Luke the uh, 16th chapter, is very clear. Whosoever puts away his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whosoever marries her that is put away from her husband commits adultery. Now, that flies right in the face of Matthew and Mark, of Matthew 5 and 19 then. Unless, of course, as some would say, you have to have the totality of God's Word together. As you would point out, too, I think you don't just take proof texts, but you lay all of God's Word out and see what the entire counsel of God is. But the Word of God does not contradict itself. No, it doesn't. It does not contradict itself. L let me ask you, Joe, just to clarify, uh, and I realize this is getting a little bit technical, y you're making the point, as I understand it, that in Matthew chapter 1, uh, Joseph and Mary, although they have not consummated their union, they are considered married. In the, in the Jewish society, at, when they were betrothed, they called each other husband and wife, yeah. even though they weren't married. And that's why, when, well, in Matthew 19, what was the end result of the, when Jesus taught this to them? Now, uh, I mean, if, if all he said to them was the only time you can get a divorce is if one of the others committed sexual impurity, or sexual unfaithfulness, or marital unfaithfulness, as these other translations said, what would, what would make the disciples say in verse 10, if the case of the man be so with his wife, it's not good to marry? What did he say that was new to them? I mean, already back in that day, if the wife danced around with her hair down, or burned the bagels, or <laughs> screamed at you in front of your, or your, your parents, you had the right to get rid of her. Yeah. What did he lay on them that was new that made them say, wow, what you're saying is, it's better never to marry? Well, certainly he was talking about, the, it would seem to me, the new aspect here is uh, if there is a divorce which occurs uh, except for sexual immorality or uh, depending upon how you define that word, but, but then saying that if the, the wife then remarries, adultery is then the issue. Isn't that the new uh, concept? Well, the new concept today is if, if you can find a reason for abandonment or sexual immorality, but you see the, the whole covenant, uh, the, whole, the whole principle is, is warped, because the first thing we have to understand is a covenant can only be violated. It cannot be broken. Let me give you an example, Bill. Yeah. God is married to Israel. He said over and over again, you're my wife, you're my wife, you're my wife. Israel has violated and violated and violated that covenant. And God said, you have gone off with many other lovers into whoredoms and adulteries and everything else, and I've given you a bill of divorcement, but if you'll only repent, I'll take you back because you're my wife. He sent Hosea out after Gomer, after she was completely worn out as a prostitute and sold into slavery, and brought her back to show how God loved Israel. He brought her back, even after she had been violated and violated and violated and violated her covenant with him. He said, go get her now and bring her back. And he was trying to illustrate his love. And you see, in, in Deuteronomy 24, it, uh, that, that's one of the most distorted portions of Scripture that Jesus himself separated his father from. They said, well, Moses told us we could get a bill of divorcement. And he says, the only reason that happened, that Moses did that, is because of the hardness of your heart. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, and he says, from here on it's different. And, and in Jeremiah, the third chapter, God himself separates himself from that teaching. In Jeremiah 3, 1, God speaks in, not, not in the reverse vision that you're reading there, Bill, but in the King James, he starts off by saying, they say. God didn't say, I said. He said, they say, and he quotes Deuteronomy 24. And then he goes on and says, but, and, but Israel, you have violated the covenant with me over and over again. You've gone after whoredoms and, 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 and out into all kinds of immorality and adulteries, 
and I gave you a bill of divorcement, but if you'll just repent, I'll take you back. Joseph Webb, retired Baptist pastor and author of the book we're discussing, Till Death Do Us Part, with a question mark, what the Bible really says about marriage and divorce. Right now, part two of our conversation with retired Baptist pastor Joseph Webb about his book, Till Death Do Us Part, with a question mark, what the Bible really says about marriage and divorce. Joe passionately believes the dominant view in the church today that divorce and remarriage are permissible under some circumstances is erroneous. Joe, you're saying your understanding of Scripture is divorce is not permissible under any circumstances? Separation is the only thing, and that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and the verses uh, 10 and 11 where it says that a woman should not leave her husband, but and if she does, and that's in the case of, you know, brutality and uh, abuse and so forth, but and if she does, let her remain single or be reconciled to her husband. It's impossible to break the covenant. You can only violate the covenant. People said, but you don't know who I married. And I said, but I didn't marry them. You did. But the real tragedy is the church failed to teach the seriousness of the marriage relationship. So you're saying, Joe, uh, separation in ter- if if what? What, what would, uh, in your opinion, or as you see Scripture, would make a separation biblical but not a divorce? Well, that's right. I, I have actually had to, to uh, counsel uh, people in the past that they needed to separate. Uh, I know of a case where a woman told me that when she'd come home from work, her husband was drinking all day, and uh, when she'd walk through the door, and sometimes he would shoot a gun into the wall right next to her head, mm-hmm. and he'd throw objects at her, and she would duck, and he would knock a hole in the wall, and he threatened to kill her while she was asleep. And I said, you can't stay in that situation. You, you made a bad choice, but that's the choice you made. Now you have to be able to get out of that situation until something can be reconciled. Let me tell you, though, Bill, the trouble is, there's not much in the way of reconciliation today because once they leave their husband or their wife for any excuse whatsoever in our evangelical churches the pastors send them to our quote singles ministries yeah singles ministries the first question i have is why do they have babysitting in a singles ministry singles are not supposed to have children but what they are are people whose hormones are raging because their lifestyle has been totally altered suddenly and and violently and they come together and they're supposed to fellowship one with another and I can tell you from just experience right here in my own area where one pastor one assistant pastor came to me and said would you believe my pastor the pastor of my church has married this one woman out of our singles ministry six times since I've been in this church yeah well you're certainly raising uh, obviously the root of, of your concern here uh, what about uh, just to ask one uh, scripture first Corinthians seven fifteen. Uh, it, it talks about a believer married to an unbeliever. Yeah. If the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. What about the that? Other side, that's the other side, Bill, of the Matthew-Pauline exception theory. They're, they're saying for abandonment. That is not what Paul said at all. Let me first of all say that I am a believer that Paul was under the anointing of the Holy Spirit when he taught. Okay. I believe that the Spirit of God does not give us a spirit of confusion, but of a spirit of a sound mind. In verses 10 and 11, Paul says, Unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. In verse 30, uh, 39, I think it is, of that same chapter, yes. the wife, Paul said, The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth, but if her husband be dead, she's at liberty to be married to whom she will, only in the Lord. Now, Paul said that above it, 
Babylon, and if he said what Desiderius Erasmus says he's saying here in the middle, Paul is schizophrenic. Well, can you put it together for us? How do you see that? I'm, what he is saying here is if, and what's happened, here were people who had both of them been unsaved, one of them got saved, and Paul was dealing with a different situation now, one believer and one unbeliever. He's saying, you don't be the one to leave. You stay there, because he said if you stay there, your husband at least is sanctified by your being there. You can be a witness and a testimony to him. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, otherwise your children were unclean, but now are they holy? But if the unbelieving depart, not the believer, but if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. You're, in other words, that word bondage there, by the way, according to the Greek, means a state of servility, of slavery, of being trampled upon, of being treated as a vassal slave. He's saying you don't have to be mistreated. You can do the same thing up there as it was up there in 10 and 11. You can move out and live separately. But you're There's saying... No. You see, if you say that that means you can be remarried, then it flies in the face of everything else Paul and Jesus said. Paul says that the, the marriage is for life. Uh, the wife is bound by the law, talking about not, not the Ten Commandments, but the law of the marriage, which was established in the Garden of Eden, by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will, only in the Lord. Uh, if, it, and let, let's just go over to Romans, Romans chapter uh, uh, 7, I believe it is. Okay. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over man as long as he liveth. Now he's talking about the Ten Commandments. He's using it as comparison. Okay. Now he gives, it gives an example of having dominion over a person as long as they live. He says, For the woman which has an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth, but if her husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. So the, the crux, Joe, then, of, if I understand your position, is there are no biblical grounds for a divorce. Separation is allowable, but not divorce. That's what the Scripture teaches. The only gr time an individual, a Christian, could get remarried, then, would be as if the spouse dies. dies. That's, what, that's, all, that's all the Scripture says, over and over and over again. Well, let me ask you, I, th I think, something which might come up at this point. Uh, sometimes both parties are at fault. Sometimes there's clearly one party, that is, the victim. I realize we're all sinful. None of us is innocent in the biblical sense, but yes. there are victims uh, in these things. Uh, people are abandoned. Uh, husbands leave and uh, marry their secretaries, and they leave a wife with children. Uh, what about that? What about justice in those situations? God is a God of justice, isn't he? Well, Hebrews says... God uh, will judge adulterers and fornicators. I know of a woman who was a pastor's wife. Her husband was a very, very strong preacher, had great results. I mean, he had growing churches. And one time her son came home and said, I saw Dad with another woman in the car, and he had his arm around her. And uh, she didn't want to believe it. When she asked him, he, she, he denied it. And make a long story short, he had her committed two times to a mental hospital uh, to tell and telling people she was losing her mind because he had caught her at this. Later on, the woman herself came in and admitted it and showed the receipts and everything, and she had the woman stay there and presented it to her husband. He said, well, big deal. So he was thrown out of his church and uh, lost his, uh, uh, his license to preach for two years, and uh, then he started preaching again, and she stayed with him, 
he had violated and violated. In fact, uh, every time he'd go in evangelistic meetings, this girl would go and meet him at the motel and stay in the motel while he was having evangelistic meetings. Hmm. The woman knew this. She said, I'm in a covenant relationship with my husband. I will be obedient to the Lord. When she, he took another little church, they found out he had cancer of the groin, and he would lay in that bed saying, oh, the wages of sin, the wages of sin, the wages of sin. That man died. That woman said, I promise the Lord for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, so long as we both shall live. And you know, in, in, uh, in Deuteronomy and Numbers and um, Ecclesiastes, it said it's better never to make a vow to God than to make it and to break it. The Ecclesiastes says, don't even say it was a mistake, because if you do, I personally will destroy the work of your hands. Well, obviously, we, as I raised the issue, that, that of the victim. But what about First uh, John 1, 9, and uh, uh, take your position. Uh, I realize you see it based upon the scripture that it is uh, sinful to divorce, obviously, then to remarry. What about First John 1, 9 that says, if we confess our sins? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word, confess means to come into agreement with God that it what that sin is. Yes. Okay? If I tell you that I have confessed to God that I stole $1,000 from you, and God has forgiven me, and then I steal another $1,000 from you, and I tell you that I have confessed it, and God has forgiven me, and I steal another $1,000 from you, how many times do I have to do that before you begin to doubt my sincerity? Well... It, all I know is the scripture does say if we confess, so well, I would assume as many times as you confess it. But Bill, the thing that we're missing here is the Bible says except you repent. Repentance is absolutely necessary, first of all, for salvation. Except you repent, you'll perish. It said that John the Baptist preached repentance, Jesus preached repentance, the disciples all preached repentance. Peter on the day of Pentecost said, repent and be baptized every one of you for, for the remission of sins. Uh, we have lost, all we're hearing today is simply only believe in Jesus. But the Bible says we have to repent of our sins, which means we have to have a hatred of, a changing of our mind, a hatred of, and an aversion, and a turning away from our sin. You see, if a, if a person said, let, let me give you an example. Let's say that two sodomites come to your altar, come to the altar of your church, and kneel down to accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. When they stand up, the pastor then says, now old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You can go on living in this relationship, and God's going to bless it. A prostitute comes to the altar, and she's been doing three tricks a night, and she kneels down, and when she gets up, the pastor says, from now on, only do one trick a night and witness to the man while you're in bed with him. Mm -hmm. Is that genuine repentance? Well, no. No. And, but you see, the difference is we have not accepted those mores, those standards, into our society yet, but we have now swallowed divorce and remarriage hook, line, and sinker where all we have to do is say, I'm sorry, and stay in bed with someone else. But when Jesus said, and by the way, Bill, let me just interject this. It is the vow that we make to one another that causes us to become one flesh. And so when we become one flesh, Paul said, or Jesus said, your body, Paul, I'm sorry, Paul said that your body is not yours anymore. So you're saying it's the vow, not the actual act of coming together. Oh, yes, because you see, if sex, if sex made the marriage, there would be no such thing as fornication. In fact, in Malachi, it says you were made one flesh by your vows. Your view is um, somewhat cut, obviously cut and dry, uh, straightforward, uh, and yet uh, why is it such a minority view? Certainly we have uh, theologians in seminaries, uh, pastors, uh, books, uh, people that do know the scriptures and that, and that study them, and yet uh, either they've arrived at a different conclusion or what is so often I've heard said in this issue is they don't they're just not sure 
Well, they're saying, uh, first of all, what's happened is we have swallowed situation ethics. I've been in the seminary, a college and seminary, and got my degrees, and while I was there, I felt the first twinges of, of uh, situation ethics. And we are, we've come to a place where we feel, you know, that's not being merciful, that's not being gracious. There were times when Jesus wasn't merciful and gracious, too. He turned around and said, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And they turned around and left him. And he didn't say, well, you know, just once in a while, he didn't compromise at all. He said, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and my, his own life also, he can't be my disciple. If you're not willing to take up your cross every day and follow me, you can't be my disciple. Whosoever he be of you that's not willing to forsake all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. That's not easy preaching. A question here, too, Joe, I think would come up in this context. What about the individual that was divorced before coming to Jesus Christ? You see, this is another misnomer, that once you become, Jesus, come in, become a Christian, you can drag your whole bag of sins into Christ, and now you can start all over again. There is no indication in the Scripture whatsoever that there's a difference between an unsaved marriage and a saved marriage. When the marriage law was made, there was not one born-again Christian on the face of the earth. There was not one Jew on the face of the earth, not one Muslim on the face of the earth. God established this law in the Garden of Eden, and that's where he said when any two people commit themselves to one another, as creator, as the creator of all mankind, he says, you will be one flesh. Mm -hmm. Noah's day, he said that they were marrying and giving in marriage. Who was that, Noah, or was it the unbelievers? Well, that would be the unbelievers. And God recognized that. He said they're marrying and giving in marriage. When, when John the Baptist came to Herod, Herod was not a Jew. He was not a Christian. He said it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. What was he talking about? He's talking about an unbeliever marrying someone that was somebody else's wife. He lost his head over that. If he had gone to seminary, he could have saved that real quickly. He would have gotten talked out of that, you see. Well, l let me ask you, Joe. I think some people listening to this might wonder what you're saying then is, uh, and obviously, majority consensus doesn't mean something's right, yep. but, but you're saying the, the vast majority of theologians, people that study the scriptures, uh, you would have to conclude that on this issue, they're wrong, and even though your, your position is only held by a very few, that yours is the correct one. Bill, let me ask you something. When in scripture was the crowd ever right? That's a good question, and yet you're saying that doesn't make any difference. It really doesn't make any difference if it's contrary to the Word of God. And all the way through now, I have never I have never once said, this is what I think. Since we started talking, I've said, this is what the Scripture says. This is what the Scripture says. And when we talked about what the others said, I, I was trying to show you that it's based upon a false premise. It is not marital unfaithfulness. It's pornea. It was sex between singles. Yeah, and that I know that is a major crux because... Um, obviously, throughout most of, most of evangelical Christianity, the various, if you will, the modern versions, the NIV, the New American Standard, which is highly regarded, but if you would only take the King James Version, is it ultimately about what Bible version we're using? Well, no. The only th the reason I'm saying this is because the newer versions have distorted that word, pornea, to fit into what they want it to, to mean. And that word pornea does not mean sexual unfaithfulness. Never has faith, sexual unfaithfulness been grounds for divorce. Never. In the Old Testament, if they committed adultery, they stoned them to death. But you're saying, Joe, that the, the modern versions have mistranslated a word that the King James Version has translated correctly. Does it come down to that? Yes. In fact, if you don't want my word for it, Dr. Frank Logston, 
who was the main thrust behind the New American Standard version of the Bible. His statement was, I'm afraid I'm in trouble with the Lord. I laid the groundwork. I wrote the format. I helped interview some of the translators. I sat with the translators. I wrote the preface. I'm in trouble. Because someone has shown him that, that those translations, the changes in there, are devastating to what the truth of the Word of God had to say. Mm. Dr. Frank Logston himself made that quote. Yeah, well, this is certainly a scholarly debate. Uh, the King James Version debate, that's obviously a whole other um, issue. But w one thing I did want to ask, and this is very important, I think, in this context too, Joe, is how can or how should the church prevent divorces? Is there something that we should, as a church, be doing up front with people who, say, are engaged? Oh, well, absolutely. We should, uh, when people are, before they ever get married, the church needs to come back to tell them that marriage is like a sacrament. Marriage is sacred. It's something that God does, not we do. The state doesn't make us one flesh. They just simply record that we went through the ceremony that was required in order to be recorded that they're married and divorced. And you see, because we've allowed the state, uh, people have said that, well, we got married and got our license from the state, so now we can get the state to separate us. And the Bible says no man can do that. God joins us as one flesh until death. Now, that's why, for better or for worse, I had somebody say to me, well, I just don't love my wife. And I said, can you, you can't love her as your wife. Can you love her as your neighbor? Well, no, I can't do that. I said, well, then you better love her as your enemy because Jesus said you're supposed to love your enemies, too. That's true, yeah. That's your wife. Yeah, good if point. You don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. I, I, to show you the distortion, Bill, I actually went to a retreat one time and met two couples who had divorced each other and married one another's partners, and to show the community that they had forgiven each other, they were all going to stay in the same tent at that re retreat. Hmm. There's something sick here, something really twisted. Now, now let me drop the other shoe, and this is what really, where the storm, I mean, where the dirt hits the fan. I, I showed you that Luke 16:18, whosoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her that was put away. Let me put some names to that now. Jack marries Jill divorces Jill, this is what Jesus has given an illustration of, Jack divorces Jill and marries Sue, now we call it marriage in our society, Jesus says it's adultery, and I said, now you choose who you're going to believe. Jesus said, now if that's adultery, Jack divorced Jill, married Sue, and Jesus said that's adultery, the only way that can be adultery is if Jack and Jill are still one flesh. Adultery is sex outside the marriage. Now, he goes right on in the same verse and says, and whosoever marries her that was put away in the divorce, Jill. Now, Sam comes along and marries Jill. It says it causes her to commit adultery. They have only violated the covenant. They can't break it. It's still there. They're both living in adultery. And the Bible says if you marry someone after, before your husband dies, call that person an adulterer or an adulteress. Here's the other shoe. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. And it goes on naming other lifestyles, not acts of sin, but lifestyles. None of these shall inherit the kingdom of God. Well, you have raised a, a huge issue. Certainly, uh, I, I, th I think of the parallel uh, passage in Galatians 5, where it lists the works of the flesh. It ends with the same statement, shall That's not right. inherit the kingdom of God. One of those is hatred. So are, are we saying then that, uh, and also in that passage that you uh, referred to in 1 Corinthians uh, 6, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. uh, later on it says, But such were some of you, That's right. but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So are you saying 
uh, if a believer gets divorced and there's adultery there that they then lose their salvation? No, I'm saying if they're living a lifestyle of having, living with someone other than their first partner, they're in a lifestyle of adultery. And Jesus said the adulterer should not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, let, let's just go and show you how much deeper it was. You talk about somebody preaching a hard message. Jesus said, back in that day when they told, he told people that they were lusting, and they said, oh, it's not me, Jesus, it's my eye. My eye was lusting there. And he said, okay, then pluck your eye out and cast it from you. Because it's better for you to go out into eternity with one eye missing than to be cast, your whole body be cast into Gehenna, which is the place of greatest torment. And he was saying to them, if you, uh, another way of committing adultery is to look upon a woman with lust in your heart. And he said, if you live that lifestyle, he's not talking about where a man stumbles and says, oh God, that's sin, I don't want my life, I, I turn away from that, in Jesus' name. He's talking about where they live that lifestyle, he says, you're going you're gonna to be cast into Gehenna. So, uh, b a big question here, I think, Joe, is the whole uh, issue of salvation, and is an individual's salvation secure in Christ or not? Are you saying it's not? Well, yes, I'm saying by abiding in Christ we are secure, Bill. There's no question about it. There's one little difference, and uh, this is something, another whole subject to get on, but uh, God the Father was married to Israel. I said that a while ago. They're in a covenant they cannot break. Jesus Christ is engaged to his church. He's not married to the church. I thought you said, though, Jesus, that... I said, except it be for fornication. During the time of fornication, if one of the, during time of engagement, if one or the other commits fornication... It is grounds for divorce. So you would say then a believer's uh, salvation then is not secure? I'm saying a true believer's salvation is, is secure. Hmm. Because a true believer is one who has put Jesus Christ first in their life, and they're either right or can easily be set right by the Word of God. We have an awful lot of religious people in our churches today, Bill, who do not know the first thing about dying to themselves and living totally for the Lord, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, being committed to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, if you don't forsake all that you have for my sake and love me more than your wife, husband, children, anyone else, you can't be my disciple. So are you saying then that there are a lot of things that we need to do to truly be saved? No, not do. The, tr the truth is, to be saved, we have to repent of our sins. And you see, that's what we're missing here. Repent of our sins and trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of our life. And, you know, in doing so, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He that says he loves me and does not keep my commandments, he's a liar. The truth isn't even in him. And yet that's, not a, say that. that's not a salvation issue, though. No, no, he's talking about a religious thing, though. There are many people today that say, I believe in Jesus. But he said, if you say you love me, if you say that, that does not mean that you do. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and they won't be grievous to you. Right. And, of course, that would be a sign of Christ in someone's life. He's the only one that can give us the strength to do that in the first place. That's right. It? Yeah. That's exactly right. Yes, you see, w what happened, we're so concerned about making people feel so comfortable and so much at ease that God's got a hammer lock on us, and we're going to go to heaven whether we like it or not, that we need to go to the other side and say, look, God's word says, if you love me, you keep my commandments, and if you abide in me and my words abide in me, in you, then you will ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. We need to get back to a relationship to Jesus Christ, not a, a you know, a, an easy believism. But uh, the Word of God was given to us by the grace of God, but he said that it's the Word that's going to judge us. Not what I say, not what pastors say, it's the Word. And that's why Paul said that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians, because they took even the things that Paul the Apostle said, went home and searched the Scriptures to see if these things be so. And that's all I ask people. Search the Scripture and see if what I'm saying is true. Former Pastor Joseph Webb, author of the book we've been discussing, 
till death do us part with the question mark what the Bible really says about marriage and divorce.